evening, everybody. We're going to carry on with our service. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name's Alice, and my husband and I um, are the site pastors for Cardiff Central, along with Paul. Um, Matt and I often kind of tend to focus, do lots of stuff in the morning, and Paul often does stuff in the evening. So it's lovely to be here this evening um, speaking to you. Today we are carrying on our um, series in Nehemiah, looking at the book of Nehemiah. And I kind of wanted, before we dive in, um, just in case you missed last week or in case you don't know the book of Nehemiah, um, I thought it might be super helpful just to do a quick recap. Um, James, last week when he started the series, he did a bit of a um, kind of a, laid out the context of Nehemiah. And I thought it might be really helpful to go over that again, just so that we feel like we're all on the same page. And I'd also just encourage you, as we look at the book of Nehemiah over the next few weeks, we're going to kind of major in on the first Ooh, a few chapters, I don't know how many, the first few chapters. So if you have, you know, t- time in the week, you want to spend a bit of time looking at it, you know, delve in and read it for yourself. And I said, we are, as a church, going to be journeying through this book over the next few weeks. So the context of Nehemiah is that this is the, the kind of the, the lowest point of Israel's history. You know, the, the events that happen in Nehemiah are at the point in, in Israel's history where they no longer exist as a nation. Um, it's kind of towards the end of the Old Testament. It's not towards the, the end of the Old Testament in terms of where it is in the Bible. It's about halfway through the Old Testament. But it's towards the end of the period of history that the Old Testament covers. It's right at the end in that sense. And at this point, um, Israel no longer exists as a nation. They've been defeated by the Babylonians. And the temple has been destroyed, absolutely flattened. And the city of Jerusalem has been decimated. Um, The people of Israel have been taken into captivity and they have been scattered throughout the Babylonian Empire. Um, So here they are. They have no no king, no land, no identity. And then the Babylonians themselves are overthrown. They are overthrown by the Persians. And the Persian king Cyrus, he um, allows some of the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem to start to rebuild the temple. And and that's what we can read about um, in the book of Ezra. And Ezra is the book before Nehemiah in the Bible, and they kind of come together. They're like twins together. And um, and then we have this moment which we read about in Nehemiah 1 that we looked at last week in our first installments of the series, the moment where we meet the man, Nehemiah. And right away, as soon as the book book starts, we see a moment where he meets his brother and his brother's, uh, some of his brother's friends. And the, 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 the visitors, they fill Nehemiah in on all the events that have been taking place. They fill him in on how the, re, you know, about the rebuilding of the temple. They fill him in on some of the, there's been a lot of tension between the people that have gone back to the people that had stayed. You know, they're kind of, they're like the out-of-towners came back and the people that had already stayed, the remnant, there was a lot of tension between them. We'll pick up on that throughout the series. But so they, they, they tell Nehemiah about that. And they also tell Nehemiah that the city walls are yet to be rebuilt successfully, that they are still destroyed. You know, and the walls represented Jerusalem's security and identity as a city. And when Nehemiah hears this, he is broken. He is devastated to hear that. Um, you know, he's devastated to hear that the city is still open to attack, that it's still vulnerable. And that to some extent is also still like the laughing stock of the local area, that this city that was once so great and so powerful is now decimated and it can't even protect itself, that it's lost its identity. And Nehemiah is broken to hear this and we read about last week in chapter one how he cries out to God he is broken and God gives him a vision in that moment of what it would look like to see that city restored what it would look like to see the city of Jerusalem restored and Nehemiah is broken for that vision and then towards the end of chapter one um, we uh, we find out that Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king 
Now, that's kind of a unique position in the Persian, um, in the Persian Empire, where his job was to, um, to work alongside the king. And every time the king had to kind of eat or drink anything, Nehemiah's job as the cupbearer had to try it first to make sure it wasn't poisoned. A bit like some kind of Russian roulette, Persian roulette of trying all these foods and then saying yes, and then the king could have them. So he's in this privileged position miles away from Jerusalem, um, and he is um, able to have access to the king. And uh, Nehemiah would have known that for the, for the rebuilding of the walls to happen at all, what it would take was for the king to give permission. He needed to get the king's permission. And if he wanted to be the man for the job, if he wanted to be the person that was going to go and rebuild them um, himself, that the king was going to have to release him from this position as a cupbearer and give him his blessing and send him off and allow the city of Jerusalem to, to be slowly rebuilt again. So that's the task before Nehemiah. And I said, he is broken um, to see this vision realized. And that's where we left it last week. So we're going to jump back in in chapter two. And we're going to read one to nine. It's going to come up behind me, but you can look it up in your Bible or your phone or whatever um, suits you best. So here we go. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct when I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me tem timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. It's an amazing story, isn't it? The story of Nehemiah is brilliant. And um, the thing that st stands out to me, I don't know about you, but when I read these verses, the word that comes to my mind is risk. Risk. You know, in this moment, Nehemiah risks everything he has for the sake of the vision that God has given him. He risks everything for the sake of restoring the city. You know, he risks his status, his position, um, his life potentially. You know, this relationship that he had with the king was entirely built on trust. You know, the king had to trust Nehemiah with his very life. And so it was important that that relationship, there was a kind of delicate balance to it. And it was important that the king felt he could trust Nehemiah. And in that moment of asking, you know, for the, for the king's permission for him to leave and to go back to a city miles away, um, you know, there was a danger that the king could have taken this as disloyalty. He could have sensed that this was a breakdown of the trust. You know, at that moment, he could have had Nehemiah killed if he sensed anything was up. So Nehemiah is, being, is risking everything as he goes and asks the king um, for his permission. Nehemiah is risking everything for the vision that God has given him. And today, this evening, I want to look at risk, the topic of risk. And I'd love us to think about what would it look like for us to be a, peop a people of kingdom risk, of people that don't just play it safe. What does it look like to risk? 
And one of John Wimber's famous sayings, if you don't know John Wimber, he was um, the guy that, you know, back in the 80s that started the vineyard movement. And one of his most famous sayings was this, faith is spelt R-I-S-K. Faith is spelt R-I-S-K. To step out in faith is to risk. You know, to be a kingdom carrier is to risk, isn't it? You know, it is a risk to offer to pray for somebody. It is a risk when we share our faith with somebody. It is a risk when we, in a moment, we own up and we say sorry for something we've done. You know, it is a risk when to be vulnerable in a community with other people, to be part of a community like this, to turn up here on a Sunday night. If you don't know anyone, that is a risk. It is a risk to be part of a small group and be open about where you're really at in life. It is a risk. It is a risk to pursue a vision or calling that God has given you. It's a risk. It's out of our comfort zone and it's totally out of our control. So how can we as Christians, as people called to see restoration in our city, you know, that is the vision for us as a church, to restore this city, renew this nation for Jesus. How can we increase our capacity for risk? Because if we're honest, I think often our capacity for risk feels quite small, doesn't it? <laughs> Just a thought of it, I think some of you are already thinking, oh, this is uncomfortable talk. <laughs> um, often our capacity for risk can feel quite small. And you know, the, the, the general trend that we see in the society around us is that we are becoming more and more risk averse. Um, you know, that doesn't take much to do, you know, some research on the internet. And you will soon see that this is true of both the millennial generation. You know, fewer and fewer people in their 20s are doing startup companies, are taking those kind of risks. But it's also true of the older generation, you know, who may be living longer and who are therefore, um, it would show, that are taking fewer and fewer risks with their finances and property and stuff like that. So as a society, we are becoming more and more risk averse. And then it might not surprise you to also realize that as a society, as a culture, we are becoming more and more anxious and fearful. That anxiety is on the increase. Um, we are becoming a nation of worriers. A recent poll suggested that almost 50% of 18 to 30-year-olds are worried for their future. So that would basically be about half the people in this room. Be worried for their future. Now, you might not be surprised to hear this, judging, you know, crazy week in politics, hasn't it been another crazy week? Um, you know, you might read about the climate, you know, stuff like climate change is a real, you know, um, some real worries around that, obviously, international security. I mean, the list is endless of stuff if you want to worry about that you can worry about, of course. Um, we are afraid as a, as a people, as a nation, we are afraid. Fear is on the increase. And risk and fear are directly linked, aren't they? You know, fear can be the biggest limiting factor in our ability to risk. Fear can be the biggest limiting factor, factor in our ability to risk. Now, of course, some fear is worth saying as a caveat. Some fear is healthy, isn't it? You know, we need some level of fear in life because it warns us that there's actual genuine danger around us. You know, the other day, or it was last summer, my husband and I, we've got two small kids, and we took them for a walk up to uh, the Brecon, uh, yeah, up to near Brecon, where there's those amazing waterfalls. You may have been there, these beautiful waterfalls, and we kind of got the kids out of the car and, you know, kind of crossed over the road and started the walk, and they started doing what all kids do, which is, are we nearly there yet? And you can literally see the car behind us still in the car park, like, mm, not quite. <laughs> Keep going, come on, sing some songs, give them chocolate buttons every, you know, <laughs> step of the way. That's how we parent. And off we went. And, um, you know, I remember like we'd walked for like, you know, maybe half an hour, 45 minutes, and you could hear the roar of this um, waterfall. You could hear the crashing water, this 80-foot drop of water. It was like powerful. It was loud. And as we approached it, I could see my kind of kids scampering off. And I looked up and realized that there was surprising lack of health and safety around these waterfalls. There was no barrier. There was no gate. There was nothing. Literally just a sheer drop, an 80-foot drop down. So my kids are running off. And I did what all mums do, where I screamed loudly, 
who pulled their hands and yanked them back and made them stand further back than anyone else near that waterfall. They were not going too near it. But it was, you know, it was amazing, but it was loud. And there it was dangerous. I think that wasn't too crazy of me. You all look like you're thinking I was crazy and over the top. <laughs> um, but, you know, fear alerts us to danger. We need fear in our lives to some extent. A healthy fear alerts us to danger. Fear isn't wrong. It isn't a sin. It's not a sin to have fear. It can alert us to danger. But when fear comes from a place of brokenness, when it comes from a place of brokenness, it can stop us living the lives of faith that God designed us for. You know, there's a real danger as Christians that we can let fear control us. And in doing so, that we never pursue the lives of kingdom risk that Jesus has called us to. That we let fear get the best of us. You know, those moments, have you ever seen that horse racing where a horse kind of runs to a jump and then just, oh, no, not going to do it. And it kind of bolts before the jump. refuses at the last minute. You know, it does that because of fear. I don't know about you, but sometimes in my Christian life, that's what it feels like. There's a moment to, to do something, to take a step, and you think, oh, no, not going to do it. You know, a moment when you could have shared your faith, when you could have pushed a little bit deeper, where you could have offered to pray for somebody, um, where you could have stood up for an injustice that you'd seen, where you could have said sorry or spoken honestly. There was a moment like that, and you bottle it like a horse at a jump. Where fear gets the better of us. It stops us living the lives of kingdom risks that we were designed to live. Um, I kind of also want to say at this point as well, as we talk more about fear uh, alongside risk this evening, that I might, you know, I'm aware that as I speak this into the room, that there'll be people here this evening for whom fear is, you know, at a a debilitating level in your life, that you live with a level of fear and anxiety and worry in your life that is a real issue. Some of us are struggling um, with that this evening. And the thing I'd love you to hear this evening, if you don't hear anything else, just tune into this. You know, your father in heaven loves you. He loves you. He wants the best for you. And he understands that sometimes, you know, our brokenness can go so deep that we have levels of anxiety that are, you know, just off the charts. He understands that, but he doesn't want to leave you there. You know, he wants you to be restored in a place of restoration yourself. And so maybe the risk that you take this evening is to talk about that for the first time, to talk to someone about that. Maybe it's to engage with some of the pastoral care that we offer as a church. Maybe it's to chat to your GP or go to a counsellor. There's no shame in that. So I just wanted to kind of put that aside. I'm not going to major in on some of the aspects of fear. I'm going to be talking about fear in its most general sense this evening. And, um, you know, and, and, and to that extent, fear affects all of us. You know, fear has some effect on all of us. And as I said, it can be the biggest hindrance for us taking risks for the kingdom. So what is it that you are scared of? Where is there fear in your life? Do you have a real fear of failure? Are you terrified of it all going wrong? Are you terrified of what people think of you? That can be a huge one, fear of what other people think. A fear of rejection. Maybe you really struggle to be vulnerable because you fear that you'll get rejected if people understood the real you. And you come to church and you put a different face on. You've got a real fear of rejection. Maybe you've got a fear of being left out. You don't want to be left out of a friendship group or something like that. Maybe you've got a real fear of kind of, um, of hardship, of financial hardship. Maybe, you know, the Lord is asking you to take a risk in some area of your life. And you're like, Lord, I don't want to do that because I'm scared I won't have the money. I'm scared that you're not going to provide. So what is it that you fear and how is it stopping you currently taking a kingdom risk? What is the impact it's having in your ability to take risks? And the problem is if we don't think about that, if we don't start to deal with the fear in our lives, that we end up kind of anesthetizing it in a different way. What we end up doing is we just crave comfort and security in our life. And we try and push down those feelings of fear by just creating a false feeling of comfort and security. You know, we kid ourselves that we are ultimately in control of our lives. 
And of course, we have some control over our lives, but we're not ultimately in control of our lives. But what we do is, is we're, if we're not careful, we end up just pursuing comfort, security at all costs, because it helps us just kind of, in the short term, anaesthetize ourselves and to, to fear. It helps us feel like we're in control. And for Christians, that can be the case even with our faith. We can just seek the comfortable parts of our faith to help us push down fear in our lives. John Ortberg, a Christian writer, Christian leader in the state, says this. Millions of people in churches want some of the comfort associated with spirituality, but they don't want the risk and challenge that go along with actually following Jesus. We want the comfort associated with spirituality, but we don't want the risk and challenge that go along with actually following Jesus. You know, I think Jesus wants to kind of wake us up as a church, not just this church, but the church around the world. To wake us up, you know, dust us off and get us actually living the lives of kingdom risk that he's designed us to do. And, and, and then a huge step forward in thinking about this, a huge step forward is to realize that to some extent, the fear we feel when we risk will never completely go away. Now, that's not to say that we don't deal with levels of fear in our lives, that we don't, um, you know, process them with Jesus, that we don't look for breakthrough. But we do have to realize that, that to some extent, risk will always involve some level of fear. Just think about any time you risked anything, you would have felt scared to some extent, wouldn't you? There will always be some fear when we risk. That's part of it. But faith looks like doing it anyway. Faith looks like doing it scared. Faith is recognizing that we will always feel fearful, but we do it scared. And that's what we see Nehemiah is able to do. I find verse 2 in that chapter we just read really comforting. I don't know if you noticed it when I read it out. You know, there's the moment where Nehemiah senses this is his opportunity to seek the king's blessing, to seek the king's favour, to return to Jerusalem and start rebuilding these walls. He senses the moment. He senses the spirit of God there. And what does he say? He tells us, the reader, he says this, I was very much afraid. Thank you. So honest, Nehemiah. Thanks for telling us. He's terrified. But he doesn't bottle it. He's terrified, but he doesn't bolt the fence. He doesn't refuse to jump. He still does it. He does it anyway. He takes the risk. You know, he feels afraid, but he doesn't let that feeling of fear overwhelm him. John Ortberg, who I just quoted, also says this, I never want the no of fear to drown out the yes of faith. I never want the no of fear to drown out the yes of faith. You know, that's what, we talk, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the art of doing it scared. You know, not letting the no of fear drown out the yes of faith in our lives. So how is Nehemiah able to do this? How is it that he's able to say yes to faith and no to fear in that moment? Well, firstly, you'll notice he does it from a place of deep connection with God. You know, what we learned, what we saw about Nehemiah in chapter one was that he was deeply connected to his father in heaven. That's the first thing he did when he heard about the state of the walls in Jerusalem. He didn't start planning, didn't start doing, didn't start calling a meeting. He talked about it with God. He was deeply connected with God. He sought the Lord's heart and he said, Lord, I need your favor. He wanted to do this in step with God. He did it with his eyes fixed on God. He spends his time praying, fasting, talking to God. He's alert to the presence of God. You know, that moment when the king in verse 4 says to him, you know, what's going on, Nehemiah? You look a bit sad. What is happening here? And, um, and there's that moment in verse 4 that says this, I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. You know, just like a split second in a heartbeat. Obviously, in his brain, he didn't say it out loud, I'm sure. He just literally did a little arrow prayer, which I'm sure we've all done at times. We were like, God, I really need you now, please. Amen. And then went for it. He talks to the king. He's taking this step of faith with his eyes fixed on God. He's deeply connected. It's from knowing God deeply that he's able to sense the moment, when is the right time. It's from knowing God that he knows, that he's, that he's, um, he knows his identity as he does this. Nehemiah knows who he is, who God has called him to be. He knows the vision that God has given him. 
He knows where his identity lies. He knows which king he is really called to serve. Is it this earthly king or is it his king in heaven? He knows which king he is truly called to serve with his life in that moment. He's deeply connected to God. A few weeks ago, I spoke on Easter Sunday, in fact, and I was, I was telling... Um, I was talking about how the last six months I've been doing a spiritual formation course, which I found super helpful in terms of going deeper in my faith and working out where is it I want to see breakthrough in my life, where is it I want to be, you know, in the next kind of year, five years, in terms of my faith. What kind of person do I want to be? What person has God made me to be? And the thing, some of the things that I've been thinking about over the last six months is where in my life does fear and anxiety hold me back? You know, where is it that I say yes to fear and no to faith? And the thing that I have not been able to get away away from in the last six months has been how vitally it is important that I stay connected to God, that I stay connected to Jesus. That is is, is the single most important thing for me, to, to begin to live a life with more freedom, more freedom from fear and anxiety. It's maintaining that relationship with Jesus, my connection with Jesus. And I've always struggled in my life at times to have kind of, you know, right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, you know, pray this time every day and then I'll do it for a while. And then it doesn't feel very life-giving. So then I stop doing it because I want to be religious. So then I stop doing it. And then, then there's a kind of a few months where it's a bit all over the place. And then, no, I go back to doing it religiously. And I, you know what I mean? I'm not sure if that's anyone else's experience here. That's always been my case. But as I've been doing this course, I've realized, you know, my heart behind it is that I want to stay deeply connected to God. And that is, that is what is making my time with him life-giving. It's because I realize that I'm fully dependent on him. You know, if I want to be the person that God has called me to be, if I want to see this, you know, the stuff that's on my heart to see, the vision that God has given me for my life, for this city, for the role that I have here, if I want to see that happen, I've got to stay deeply connected to him. I'm not going to be able to do it on my own. You know, in those moments, I'll always say yes to fear and no to faith, unless I'm deeply connected to my Father in heaven. So Nehemiah, you know, he shows us what it is to risk from a place of deep connection to God. Secondly, he risks from a place of obedience. I love that song we just sang at the end. You know, I didn't even know we were going to sing it today. You know that, um, you know, let my heart be yes to you, Jesus, that we will be obedient to him. Nehemiah, to some extent, is just doing what God has asked him to do. He's just being obedient. Now, as I'm talking this evening, you might be thinking of a story in the New Testament where we see a massive risk. The moment where Jesus' disciples are out on a boat and they see Jesus in the distance. Well, they don't realize it's Jesus at first. They see something out there and they realize soon that it's Jesus who's walking on the water. And they're obviously scared <laughs> and amazed all at the same time. And then Peter, you know, is quite gung-ho. He, like, he wants to go out and meet Jesus. And what is it? You may, you may know the story well, you may not. Um, but what he does is he says to Jesus, and before he steps out of the boat, he says to Jesus, tell me to come to you. Tell me, Jesus, to come to you. Command me to come to you, and then I'll do it. Because you see, Peter, in that moment, he doesn't want to step out the boat if it's not what Jesus is asking him to do. He's not going to step out the boat unless he's, it's because he's being obedient to what Jesus is asking. You know, he doesn't want to take a risk unless it's out of obedience. He's not just going to take some kind of crazy risk to kind of just walk on the water if it's not what God has asked him to do. You know, and there's, this is what we're talking about this evening. You know, taking a risk from a place of obedience is very different to just risk-taking for the sake of it, you know. There's a danger when you hear talks about risk and the Christian life and risk that we kind, of, we kind of paint a picture of the Christian faith as just one crazy thing from another and it's kind of like adrenaline Christianity going from one thing to the next thing and woohoo, off we go. And, you know, sharing stories and woohoo, and it kind of feels like it's, you know, all kind of pumped up, hyped up, that kind of thing. Um, there's in that, you know, but if, if it's not, if we're not risking from a place of obedience, then we can react in that kind of shallow way where we just go from one thing to another. Kingdom risk in obedience to Jesus, you know, it sometimes looks like staying put. 
It's not always chasing the next thing. Sometimes it's about staying put. Sometimes it's honoring our word. It's always honoring our word. It's staying put and doing the stuff that we said we would do. It's honoring our marriages, the people that we've committed to in our life. Sometimes it's staying put. It's serving other people. It's putting other people's needs first. It's not always chasing the next thing to the next thing. Now, I'm not talking about adrenaline Christianity. I'm talking about risking from a place of obedience to Jesus. So we see Nehemiah risking from here from a place of obedience despite the fear that he feels. And that's something I've been kind of experimenting with in my own life. The other day, I dropped the kids off at school, and then I was um, walking along with a friend of mine, and she started saying how she'd really hurt her shoulder. And I pretended I hadn't heard, to be honest. Didn't want to pray for her. <laughs> I was a bit scared. But we carried on. And I was like, oh, Lord, you know, if this is you, if you ask me to pray for her, then may she talk about it again. And then sure enough, we kind of the conversation came full circle, and she mentioned it again. And I was like, okay, Lord, make it really clear. And she was like, oh, and I've just tried everything. Nothing is working, and I can't sleep. I don't know. Okay. So I was like, well, you know, I was scared. I was scared in that moment. You know, the kind of the no of fear was shouting pretty loudly. Um, but I was like, do you know what, Jesus, I want to be obedient. I want to be obedient in these moments. So I was like, you know what, you might know I help lead a church. And, you know, I know it sounds weird, but can I offer to pray for you? Uh, you know, I'd feel like I wasn't being true to myself, but I didn't offer to pray for you in this moment. So can I, can I pray for you? And so I prayed for her. Um, by the car and um, you know the, the ending of the story she didn't get healed I wish I could be like yes I was like, oh. but you know I think I kind of got home and I was like God what was that about and I felt like God was just saying you know what well, in that moment um, I'm asking you to risk from a place of obedience I'm asking you to risk because this is what Jesus tells us to do you know when we risk it's because God tells us to pray for the sick he tells us to share our faith with people he tells us to speak out against injustice he tells us to be generous with how we live our lives you know when we risk in these moments when we put the kingdom first, you know, seek first the kingdom of God. That is a risk. But when we do that, we are being obedient to him. We're risking from a place of obedience. Where is God asking you to step out in obedience? Where is he asking you to step out in obedience? Where is he asking you to risk? You know, is it in a relationship in your life? Is it in your family? Is it in your workplace? Where is he asking you to risk at the moment? And where is it that you're being disobedient because you're staying in the boat? Where is it that you're just staying in the boat? Giving in to fear, letting the, the yes of fear shout louder, the no of fear shout louder than the yes of faith. So learning the art of doing it scared, you know, of letting the yes of faith overwhelm, overcome the no of fear. And that comes from a place of deep connection with God. And secondly, from a place of obedience to his voice. And then thirdly, lastly, it comes from being broken by the vision that he is giving us. It comes from a place of being broken from the vision that he is giving you. You know, for Nehemiah, as we've talked about this evening, as we talked about last week, you know, he is broken to see the city of Jerusalem restored. That is, you know, and, and, um, and he is kind of deeply saddened by it. You know, the king notices. I love the fact that the king's like, I've never seen you look so sad. What is going on? Like Nehemiah doesn't have to initiate the conversation. The king notices that something's up because Nehemiah is looking so sad. Because Nehemiah is a broken man. <laughs> God has properly broken him for this vision. Um, and it is apparent to everyone around him. But for Nehemiah, there is no other option than to ask the king. I mean, of course, there is an option because he didn't have to ask him. But in his mind, I think that there was no other option because this vision of a future of seeing the city restored was so great, was so powerful, had broken him so deeply that he wasn't going to say, he wasn't going to bottle it in the moment. He was going to go for it. He was so compelled by the vision that God had given him. What vision is God giving you? You know, what do you long to see happen in your life? 
What kind of person do you want to be? You know, what is the vision for your life? What kind of person do you want to be? How do you want people to look at you? What do they want? What do you want people to see when they look at you? Where do you want to be in the next year or so? What kind of person is God calling you to be? You know, ask God, give me a vision for it. Break my heart for that vision so that I have no other option but to step out the boat. I have no other option but to, unlike Nehemiah, ask the king, whatever it is. I've got no other option but to do this. And our vision as a church, I've talked about is our, our vision is to see this city restored. And for us to see this happen, we will have to continually say, God, give us your heart for this city. We will have to continually be broken for this city. You know, imagine what Cardiff could look like if we saw a massive move of God in our lifetime. Just imagine it. Ask God, give us a vision of what it would look like if we saw your kingdom all over this city, Jesus. You know, what would it look like? We would see hope restored in really broken communities. We'd see people without fathers in their lives know that they had a father in heaven. We would see families mended back together coming into the kingdom. We'd see countless of people coming to know Jesus. We'd fill building after building of people worshipping. I'm compelled by that vision. I don't know about you, but we've got to say, Lord, just keep giving us that vision. We can't lose sight of it. Because otherwise, in time, we'll just slow down and we'll start saying no. We'll start saying no and we'll stop saying the yes to faith. We'll stop dreaming big. We'll stop taking the risks that it's going to take for us to even begin to see that happen. And, of course, being, being broken by the vision that God is giving you for your life, for this city, for, you know, even bigger. Being broken by that comes from a place of deep connection with him and from, a, and from being obedient to, the, to his voice in your life. You know, those three things that I'm talking about, they're connected with each other, aren't they? Um, they're all interconnected and they help us say yes to faith, yes to risk and no to fear. Now, I don't know about you, but I love, I'm not sure if you noted it, but how this passage ends, how those few verses end in chapter two. So Nehemiah goes in and, you know, he kind of tentatively susses out the situation with the king. And then the king says, well, how long will you be? And he thinks, yes, that pretty much is a yes, right? So then he goes for it. He's like absolutely audacious. I won't read it all out again, but this is, so he goes in with nothing. And this is what Nehemiah leaves with. So it goes in with absolutely nothing, and he leaves with this. He leaves for, verse 7, you can see he leaves, uh, leaves with a letter assuring um, his safe travels through the, through the Persian Empire. Then he leaves, uh, verse 8, he gets uh, the king to agree that he can have wood uh, from, the, from the, um, the royal parks to rebuild the gates, the citadel, the city wall. He cheekily asks for wood to build his own house, which I think is amazing, cheeky Nehemiah. And then he leaves also with the king's officers and cavalry behind him. So he goes in with nothing and leaves with more than he could have asked for or imagined. I love that. You know, in that moment, Nehemiah finishes at the end of that short chapter. He knows what it is like to be fully dependent on God. He knows what it is like to be fully dependent on God and then to see God show up. You know, verse 8, he says, he knows that the gracious hand of the Lord is on his life. In that moment, that deep reassurance that comes when you take a step of faith and then you see God turn up and do more than you could have asked for or imagined. You know, Nehemiah's learned what it is to do it scared and then have the pure joy of seeing God turn up. Of knowing that God is good and he can be trusted. Knowing that God is good and that he can be trusted. Now, that's not to say it was plain sailing from here on in for Nehemiah. You know, that's not to say every time we step out in faith that it will all work out gloriously. You know, the story I just told of praying for my friend that didn't have the ending that I wanted. I wanted her to be healed. But, you, but when you start to step out in faith, when you kind of build that spiritual muscle, of being able to step out and say yes to God, yes to faith and no to fear, you will see God turn up in your life in more ways than you could ask for or imagine. You will learn that God is good, that you can trust him. You can trust him, even if it all goes wrong. You can trust him with your life. 
You know, when we step out in faith, when we risk, we, we, we learn the art of doing it afraid. We learn the art of doing it anyway, recognizing that our fear will never go away. And when we start to do that, we realize that God is more good than we could ever believe, begin to imagine, that he will never leave us or forsake us, that we can trust him with our lives. Should we stand? I'd love just to pray.